Okay, so this is a third podcast, and this is about chapter three of the textbook. The before I go into the uh, uh, details or the points that I was planning to go over, maybe it merits to go over first the conclusions of uh, this chapter. First point of this chapter is that there are many. Uh, significant paradigm changes uh, that did occur approximately every 10 years. So that's like a, a decade pattern, so to say. And from here, uh, the readers, which is you guys, I hope uh, the readers uh, get to realize that there are kind of a pendulum, so to say, or shifting patterns uh, to its the donors and uh, quote-unquote international communities values, uh, psyches, uh, and ideologies, uh, these things do influence significantly the focus and therefore the quantity and the quality and attention of the donor countries to uh, how, as to how they uh, deliver or give its resources with the name of uh, ODA. So the first point, again, is that significant paradigm changes occurred approximately every 10 years. This is not to say it's a bad thing or it's a good thing, but it is just to state that that, uh, that shift does occur. Second point uh, from the conclusion of chapter 3 is that since the 80s, the academic field that does study so-called development, so it is called development studies. This studies has highlighted the multi-dimensionality of poverty. It sounds complicated, but what it means is poverty was once just defined uh, with the amount of money or the income that the uh, poor person quote-unquote, poor person uh, has, if the poor person has lower amount of money, then automatically the person was considered to be, quote-unquote, poor. But since the 80s, especially in the 90s, broader, so to say, uh, definition or concept of so-called poverty has uh, emerged, which includes not just income dimension of poverty, but also other uh, dimensions, such as environment, so social, and other entitlements and human rights itself. Anyhow, so second point of this chapter is that since the 80s, development studies has highlighted such multi-dimensionality of poverty and started to pay increasing attention to the issues of empowerment government, gov sorry, governance and security. Empowerment, governance and security. The third point of this chapter is that aid debates are strongly informed or influenced by different values, different national histories and traditions of public interventions and different ideas about what the core of development is and should be. Again, uh, I know that I am repeating this sentence too many times, but that's because it's so important. If there is only one sentence to summarize that nature of, for example, United Nations, or even this course theme, which is International Development Corporation, is that such things is such such things are political inherently political by design. And that's the single most important uh, summary of these two courses, I have to say. And this includes, surprisingly, at the same time, uh, naturally, this includes your values, your history that you know, your traditions or perception of traditions, and your ideas about the core of development is or should be. So this means that the every single one of us is actually corporate, one of the corporates, 
so to say. Uh, we are responsible. If we as a person, we decide to criticize this and that, for example, JICA project or ZTZ project or UNDP project, this means that we do have our own values. Of course, such values may have been influenced from your uh, country or the region that you grew up, etc. Or the philosophers or the, um, any of the thoughts and concepts and values that you may have. And as we know, the donor uh, countries are uh, with a group of, well, the people who live there with uh, by represented by the uh, government officials diplomats who decide on behalf of those donor countries uh, citizens what and how that resources uh, those resources uh, should be spent so naturally there is so much influence not only coming from the individuals but as you can see from countries as well so the aid debates are completely and persistently informed and influenced by different values, different national histories, and traditions of public interventions. So it's not going to be like one phase or one static uh, attitude uh, toward aid. Okay, so let's further move on to the content of this chapter. First is that the one of the many points that I like about this textbook is that this textbook, this textbook is actually go uh, going through uh, within this chapter. It goes through the study field of development, practice field or professional field called international development cooperation, as opposed to or compare compare that to the study field of development studies, and. The, this textbook goes on to explain what these are and uh, uh, characteristics. So the study of aid. The academic approaches to aid in the 50s and 60s, immediately after the World War II, were dominated by economic theories, or modernization in particular, wherein, quote-unquote, clear and linear one-way path toward better, quote-unquote, and a bigger uh, development. It's a synonymous it has the same meaning as the uh, modernization, modernizing the economy, modernizing the society. And these were considered to be the success of development and development itself. And uh, among the northern nations, it was the IDS, University of Sussex Institute of Development Studies, IDS, was the first center in the north uh, that was established with the sole focus explicitly on development as uh, a subject. And development studies as a study field moved on to become defined uh, as uh, one of the strongly interdisciplinary, meaning it's a mixture of many different study fields. Because development problems were increasingly recognized to be uh, multifaceted, a difficult word, multi-dimension is as well, uh, multifaceted and multi-sectoral. When you read, when you find the word sector, please think about uh, its, for example, Ministry of XYZ, okay? So Ministry of Education, Ministry of Health, Ministry of Environment, like that. So when you find the term sector, it's those quote-unquote typical traditional sector where operating ministries, so multi-sectoral as well. By far the largest number of his re researchers in development studies are economists. And as you have taken the uh, economics uh, courses, you know what they are and uh, what it emphasizes. It emphasizes the, uh, so to say, numeric, uh, the values, uh, of course, short-term and long-term as well, but long-term uh, numeric indicators are much more difficult to uh, identify or analyze. So therefore, there is stronger tendency to focus on uh, what's tangible, what's measurable in short 
and medium term. And the World Bank or the World Bank Group, as we covered last week, uh, it houses the single largest group of development economists. I always say this that the uh, the we tend to there's a general understanding that quote unquote the top notch researchers or experts are uh, housed uh, within the UN, for example. But that's actually not true. The reason for that is that it's the uh, UN agencies uh, that uh, ask or outsource, so to say, contract out uh, to those well-established researchers in respective fields to write, to synthesize, uh, to write up the report. And after certain drafts are made, then such drafts are to be endorsed or not, and finally to be kind of stamped uh, with a UN stamp. So it's not that the UN staff, staffers, staff members, they write its uh, their reports. Of course, they do read, but even editors are different. Editors are professional editors who were constructed also by the UN. So it's under the auspice of uh, UN. That's what it is. So the, my point here is that there is a general misconception about quote-unquote the world top-notch uh, researchers are in the UN. That's not true. Uh, UN are with uh, bureaucrats. Of course, um, some of them are very able uh, bureaucrats, but that does not mean that these bureaucrats are the experts, the top-notch experts in the field. So that's a distinction that we need to have. But having said that, because the World Bank, it has the single largest resources among all the donor agencies or multilateral agencies, World Bank, they can actually house, so they can actually hire that top-notch researchers within its group. I would say that's the, of course, there are uh, some of the top-notch researchers in the UN as well, but that happens rather rarely than, uh, than as a norm. But the World Bank, because it's of its size, because it's uh, financial resources they have, they can, they can afford to uh, house, they can afford to be with these researchers uh, who... Uh, who are to be housed in the World Bank group. Another segment or the uh, type of organization that when it, when it comes to the research uh, uh, field is that it's the uh, intergovernmental research organization. Research organizations, uh, of course, they do exist within the UN. For example, UN RIST, R-I-S-D, and UN University, where I used to work. Uh, and it's wider. Uh, there are many branches uh, in Finland, in Germany, etc. But uh, frankly, uh, their research capacity, so the UN uh, agencies that uh, focus on research, uh, their capacities are uh, relatively limited. On the other hand, uh, the textbook singles out one institution called CGIAR. CIGAR, it's called. Uh, it's acronym for Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research. This is one of the most important scientific organizations supported by the aid industry. There are many branches. Uh, for example, one about uh, rice is hosted in uh, housed in Ghana. One in uh, water resources is housed in Sri Lanka, and one in uh, uh, crop-related ones is housed in Indonesia. And this uh, organization or the group of organization, they actually uh, they are the top-notch, the world's top-notch uh, researchers, and they uh, produce the world-class uh, analyses about there are themes based on uh, many different parts of the world. But their findings are, because they are scientific organizations, their findings are uh, publicized, published uh, internationally, so that not just the aid industry, but everyone who is interested in the practice 
or the study field can benefit from. In Canada, they have IDRC, an uh, organization called IDRC, which uh, stands for International Development Research Center, IDRC. This institution is very interesting. IDRC is the largest aid agency for research with the name of development. Again, uh, I will say this uh, institution is very, very special because, again, uh, I'm just repeating, but the IDRC supports, supports those uh, studies, researches, focusing on development. So this means that the, uh, in uh, most of the uh, developing countries, this IDRC uh, mainly give aid. And that this IDRC supports research and also uh, give expert advice and building local capacity in developing countries. The textbook talks about North orientation. There's a huge tendency about uh, this, the dominance of the North. And uh, I have to say, I myself is uh, one of those products of Northern influenced, Northern educated. Uh, and of course, I'm born and raised in Japan. So that also just adds uh, to it. But development studies knowledge has, or findings, uh, quote unquote, have continued to be concentrated in the North. This does not mean that it is actually done by those, for example, um, so to say, white people, in a sense, or the European and North American. This means that there is a Northern dominance when it comes to education, when it comes to academic training, among everyone who has gone through it, meaning even the people from originally from the developing countries, they are going through those uh, northern education, uh, the education that they find in, uh, in the north, and whether they like it or not, uh, they are also the products of such north orientation. People, for example, coming from Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or India and other countries, for example. When you look at the, uh, for example, um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, with this intergovernmental scientific organization, it, house, it houses, houses uh, researchers who are endorsed by each uh, member of that uh, convention, but they are mostly, as you can imagine, they are mostly educated uh, in the North. So if not a nationality per se, but there is still a strong North orientation and uh, a dominance when it comes to uh, education and uh, expertise and knowledge and how that knowledge is produced and uh, written, for example. And their tendency when it comes to North orientation is that uh, such aid agencies, uh, they have started, started to focus their efforts on primary education, but not necessarily for higher education or research. Of course, they have, there are many reasons, but first uh, and foremost, the reason can be that uh, those donors, they find it difficult uh, to identify the impact of such support. There are many arguments to it that, uh, I mean, one is this one that uh, it's difficult to find the uh, long-lasting impact of support to be given to higher education and research. But at the same time, uh, by design, I don't think northern countries the North are, by design, can be interested in increasing the capacity of higher education or research capacity, uh, because at the end that will um, that will undermine the existing power and uh, I shouldn't say inertia, but uh, kind of a equilibrium. That's a better way to put it. Uh, kind of a balancing uh, point uh, of the uh, dynamism between so-called North and South. 
So, um, the textbook goes on to describe what has been going on 50s to uh, 90s. So I will just briefly go over them. But the practices in the 50s and 60s that the commonality or some uh, keywords to understand academic practices in the 50s and 60s is that they focus more on economic policies, emphasized economic policies that emphasized planning. Remember the uh, William Easterly's uh, disdain against the planning? That's precisely where it stems, actually. The model is that the development model this time uh, very much emphasized economic growth. So it's more like a number, it's more like a money, um, linear uh, type of uh, path, so to say. So this path of development was seen as, as I said, linear. So you get better with this and that element to it. When you, when you have a higher level of income, well, that's better. Okay, that type of uh, linearity that was assumed by the, the, those aid practices in the 50s and 60s. Behind it, as you can see, is the, um, yeah, it's behind it is uh, arrogance and ignorance of the northern uh, countries and its influenced people uh, to be naive enough or arrogant enough to believe that in order to develop, quote-unquote, or after those, quote-unquote, poor countries develop, quote-unquote, then those countries and people should become like us. Therefore, you guys should do whatever that is considered to take to become like us. So that's the, that's the linear pathway of uh, development and at the same time there was a little interest not much interest in the rural sector where most of the poor lived and worked that was the 50s and 60s and the 70s uh, 70s uh, characteristics are for example uh, this era has put inequality and redistribution on the agenda it used to be believed that, for example, GDP as a one uh, measurement, when the GDP increases, then everyone, everyone should benefit from. This is a phenomenon called trickle-down, so to say. If the average goes up, then of course every single one should also benefit and will also benefit. That's a trickle-down effect. But then uh, this era in the 70s, uh, the people, uh, stakeholders, they have started to kind of uh, question that idea. And second characteristic in the 70s is that more attempt uh, on uh, more rural, decentralized, and small-scale project kind of uh, a strategy. Third, also, there was a strong emphasis on uh, participatory approaches to agricultural development. So kind of a bottom-up, uh, community-based type of uh, interventions. All in all, this means that the uh, uh, interactions between traditional and modern and rural and urban sectors have started to be uh, focused or paid attention. Because the interaction between the rural and urban, this is so much related to the inequality and redistribution within the society, within the country, the recipient country. So therefore, uh, intersectoral linkages have been have started to uh, be emphasized as well. At the same time, in the 70s, uh, there is another important trend that we must know of, and that is basic human needs, BHN. A basic 
Nee's approach was central during the 70s. This is with an emphasis on satisfaction of basic needs, basic human needs. But as we all know now, that these basic human needs concepts are uh, already considered to be a little bit outdated uh, because, well, the human beings are, of course, the, the basic needs must be met in order for the people to uh, survive and to live. But, quote-unquote, again, the development should not end just with satisfying or satisfied level of basic human needs. There must be more to that. And that, anyhow, so that's the 70s. And 80s. 80s is also known, unfortunately, as the lost decade for development. This decade was dominated by World Bank and its group's structural adjustment programs. Donor approaches shifted attention to program lending, meaning project is, let's say, a set of activities. Think about that. So the project is, well, I think this is understood, the project. But the program is uh, with uh, several or number of projects to it. So instead of project lending, that the donor countries and community, they have shifted to program lending. And a textbook does talk about this north orientation. There's a huge tendency about... Uh, this, the dominance of the North. And uh, I have to say, I myself is uh, one of those products of Northern-influenced, Northern-educated. Uh, and of course, I'm born and raised in Japan, so that also just adds uh, to it. But development studies knowledge has, or findings, uh, quote-unquote, have continued to be concentrated in the North. This does not mean that it is actually done by those, for example, um, so to say, white people, in a sense, or the European and North American. This means that there is a Northern dominance when it comes to education, when it comes to academic training. Among everyone, who has gone through it, meaning even the people from originally from the developing countries, they are going through those uh, northern education, uh, the education that they find in, uh, in the north, and whether they like it or not, uh, they are also the products of such north orientation. People, for example, coming from Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or India and other countries, for example. When you look at the, uh, for example, um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, with this intergovernmental scientific organization, it, house, it houses, houses uh, researchers who are endorsed by each uh, member of that uh, convention, but they are mostly, as you can imagine, they are mostly educated uh, in the North. So, if not a nationality per se, but there is still a strong North orientation and uh, a dominance when it comes to uh, education and uh, expertise and knowledge and how that knowledge is produced and uh, written, for example. And their tendency when it comes to North orientation is that uh, such aid agencies, uh, they have started, started to focus their efforts on primary education, but not necessarily for higher education or research. Of course, they have, there are many reasons, but first uh, and foremost, the reason can be that uh, those donors, they find it difficult uh, to identify the impact of such support, there are many arguments to it that, uh, I mean, one is this one that uh, it's difficult to find the uh, long-lasting impact of support to be given to higher education and research. But at the same time, 
uh, by design. I don't think northern countries, the north, are by design can be interested in increasing the capacity of higher education or research capacity uh, because at the end that will um, that will undermine the existing uh, power and uh, I shouldn't say inertia but uh, kind of a equilibrium that's a better way to put it uh, kind of a balancing uh, point uh, of the uh, dynamism between so-called North and South. So, um, the textbook goes on to describe what has been going on 50s to uh, 90s. So, I will just briefly go over them. But the practices in the 50s and 60s that the commonality or uh, keywords to understand academic practices in the 50s and 60s is that they focus more on economic policies emphasized economic policies that emphasized planning remember the uh, William Easterly's uh, disdain against the planning that's precisely where it stems actually the model is that the development model this time uh, very much emphasized economic growth. So it's more like a number, it's more like a money, um, linear uh, type of uh, path, so to say. So this path of development was seen as, as I said, linear. So you get better with this and that element to it. When you, when you have a higher level of income, well, that's better. Okay, that type of uh, linearity that was assumed by the, the, those aid practices in the 50s and 60s. Behind it, as you can see, is the... Um, yeah, it's behind it is uh, arrogance and ignorance of the northern uh, countries and its influenced people. Uh, to be naive enough or arrogant enough to believe that in order to develop, quote-unquote, or after those, quote-unquote, poor countries develop, quote-unquote, then those countries and people should become like us. Therefore, you guys should do whatever that is considered to take to become like us. So that's the... That's the uh, linear pathway of uh, development. And at the same time, there was a little interest, not much interest in the rural sector, where most of the poor lived and worked. That was the 50s and 60s. And the 70s. Uh, 70s uh, characteristics are, for example, uh, this era has put inequality and redistribution on the agenda. It used to be believed that, for example, GDP as a one uh, measurement, when the GDP increases, then everyone, everyone should benefit from. This is a phenomenon called trickle down, so to say. If the average goes up, then of course, every single one should also benefit and will also benefit. That's a trickle down effect. But then uh, this era in the 70s, uh, the people, uh, stakeholders, they have started to kind of uh, question that idea. A second characteristic in the 70s is that more attempt uh, on uh, more rural, decentralized, and small-scale project kind of uh, a strategy. Third, also, there was a strong emphasis on uh, participatory approaches to agricultural development. So kind of a bottom-up, uh, community-based type of um, interventions. All in all, this means that the uh, uh, interactions between traditional and modern and rural and urban sectors have started to be uh, focused or paid attention because the interaction between the rural and urban 
this is so much related to the inequality and redistribution within the society, within the country, the recipient country. So therefore, uh, intersectoral linkages have been have started to uh, be emphasized as well. At the same time, in the 70s, uh, there is another important trend that we must know of, and that is basic human needs, BHN. A basic needs approach was central during the 70s. This is with an emphasis on satisfaction of basic needs, basic human needs. But as we all know now, uh, these basic human needs concepts are uh, already considered to be a little bit outdated uh, because, well, the human beings are, of course, the, the basic needs must be met in order for the people to uh, survive and to live. But, quote-unquote, again, the development should not end just with satisfying or satisfied level of basic human needs. There must be more to that. And that, anyhow, so that's the 70s and 80s. 80s is also known, unfortunately, as the lost decade for development. This decade was dominated by World Bank and its group's structural adjustment programs. Donor approaches shifted attention to program lending, meaning project is, let's say, a set of activities. Think about that. So the project is, well, I think this is understood, the project. But the program is uh, with uh, several or number of projects to it. So instead of project lending, that the donor countries and community they have shifted to program. And one key word to understand such uh, era, which is 80s with the adjustment era, is called, is what's known as Washington Consensus. Washington Consensus it's highlighted the need for. Uh, the policies of the following things. Again, Washington Consensus is used whenever uh, we want to talk about quote-unquote bad things or the tendencies or top-down type of tendencies of the donor countries. But this, this Washington Consensus includes such policies as fiscal discipline, first, Second, market-determined exchange and interest rates. Third, protection of property rights. Fourth, liberalization. Fifth, privatization. And sixth, openness to trade. And I have to say, I mean, uh, out of these six things, six policies, uh, fiscal discipline, yes, uh, somewhat... Uh, some perspectives of fiscal discipline uh, still remain as an important perspective. And the protection of property rights are still considered to be important. But other than that, I think other aspects have kind of uh, um, weighed down or um, uh, shrunk uh, with its, uh, of, of its uh, popularity, so to say, or belief. That these things, one to six things, uh, they are no longer, in general, uh, believed to be, quote-unquote, uh, one-size-fits-all solution uh, package. And this Washington Consensus, again, one to six, um, the, these tendencies of Washington Consensus are believed to be delivered with the word or the concept called conditionalities. Conditionalities uh, are, so if you are a recipient uh, developing country government, and if you would like to receive any of the resources with the name of ODA, with the name of foreign aid from World Bank and IMF, and this means that you will have to accept these conditions if you want to receive any assistance uh, from the World Bank and IMF. Uh, huge, of course, criticism against this era. 
against arrogance, uh, its arrogance, and also ignorance uh, from the north. There are many pictures you can find when you Google adjustment program era. Um, so, but that's the uh, 80s. So that's known as the uh, lost decade of development. Kind of a, yeah, it's completely lost. So that's the understanding. 90s. Um, how about 90s? Uh, the poverty back on agenda. That's kind of a title of this um, uh, decade, 90s. But this decade of 90s were met with increasing emphasis on institutions and governance. Governance, I'm sure it's maybe confusing concept or difficult concept for you, but simply put, governance is how to, it's, it's, it is about how and the conditions where you decide things. It's not about what you decide, but it's about how you decide, with whom and under what uh, situations and context. That's governance. Another perspective, interesting uh, evolution uh, within the 90s is that this was a time that the first Human Development Report, HDR, was published, and this was in the 1990. Which was first published, uh, which was published by UNDP, UN Development Program, and this concept of human development is the, is much influenced from uh, Nobel uh, Nobel Prize laureate Amartya Sen and Samuel Huck. Uh, Amartya Sen is from India, and uh, Samuel Huck, I believe, uh, he's from Pakistan, and. This human, de human development report, this claims that the basic objective of development is to create an enabling environment for people to enjoy long, healthy, and creative life. I know it's, it sounds philosophical, but Amartya Sen is a philosopher. He has... He has been awarded uh, with a Nobel Prize uh, because of his work that combined the discipline of philosophy or morality and economics. So philosophical economics, that's what it is. Amartya Sen believes that we as a human being, we have our own capabilities or kind of a potential um, area where we can uh, kind of uh, uh, fully uh, blossom. We, we should be able to enjoy our capabilities when there is an enabling environment or positive context or situations around you. If these positive or enabling or helping, supporting, okay, uh, enabling environment is there around you, your potential, your capabilities will be able to fully blossom. And that is the concept of human development. It is not about, for example, it's not about income dimension of you. It's not about how much money you earn or you have. It's about the uh, capability that you have as a fundamental right for you to be able to um, blossom and develop. And this human development report focused on such enabling environment. And that was a drastic shift, if not better shift, but yet another shift of uh, thinking toward poverty. Another aspect of uh, within 90s is uh, the shift toward governance, as I said. And to illustrate the points of governance, what it means is to, for example, uh, to compare with this Washington consensus that I said, that I quoted. But the Washington consensus, again, to illustrate the points of the importance of governance, Washington Consensus 
says nothing about the following things. For example, it says nothing about governance or institutions. It says nothing about the role of empowerment and democratic representation. It says nothing about the importance of country ownership. It says nothing about the social costs and the pace of transformation. Again, what's behind this Washington consensus and also uh, its related thinking is that there is and there should be one size fits all solution. And that is, again, uh, is very simple and very linear. When you achieve this or when you solve this equation, you will become like us. And that type of thinking is uh, luckily uh, has started to be challenged. And that's the uh, um, increased focus on the concept called governance. The newly built consensus, the different one, the newer one, so to say, uh, it highlights that the poverty is an outcome of not just economic, but social and political processes that interact and can reinforce one another. Rather than merely emphasizing short-term stabilization, especially after the uh, economic crisis, etc. And that was in the 90s, and how about in, uh, since uh, 2000? There's a continuous debate on First, the link between economic growth and poverty reduction. And second, approaches to governance and institutions. And three, more critical consideration of the results of development aid. Having said that, uh, I hope you could kind of sense that, uh, quote-unquote, never-ending uh, seemingly never-ending list of evolving, I hope it's better, but for the better, but evolving uh, trend of different concepts, different values, uh, different importance that were uh, placed with the name of development. But it's, by now, it's very clear that the donor literature or the academic fields or the analyses of findings in the among the practices and uh, academic literature on good governance it's produced too many requirements to be practical and this is not just about governance but it is also true for the development what can be for example the enabling environment for governance and what can be the enabling environment for development. The list actually goes on and on and on to the extent that it's virtually impossible for recipient government to pay close attention to. And when you look at the sustainable development goals, the tendency still remains, I have to say, that yes, for example, there are 17 goals, but when you look at the indicators, the number of indicators, there are 169. And there's just too many to follow. There is a, a question of capacity. There's a question of will. And there's a question of, for example, financial capacity. Whether or not those least developed countries they will be able to follow and monitor and measure every single one of them is, of course, much questioned. But this type of tendency still remains. So what are the challenges? I think you, you know by now, but there is uh, such a huge northern dominance. It is dominated by academic institutions and think tanks in the global north. Again, not necessarily about the people from the north, but the people who gone through, who have gone through the education in the north. That's the first challenge. Second challenge is poverty as a cause. Compare that to development 
as an effect. Much poverty analysis has focused on identification of characteristics of the poor rather than the causes of and the policies that lead to or sustain poverty. There is a huge emphasis in just describing the characteristics of the poor and the poverty rather than going to the causes of the uh, poverty and also the for example the, the what were the policies that have necessarily generated this poverty but having said that this is from the 2000 or the 21st uh, uh, century for the 10 years and I have to say that this is now um, is becoming again uh, different with again two years ago uh, Professor Duflo and the Professor uh, Abishid sorry Barnaji sorry of MIT they have been uh, co-awarded with a Nobel Prize and right now it's the era of randomized control trial RCT and if you're interested in measuring and comparing different interventions then you uh, uh, one book that I can definitely recommend is Poor Economics and that's written by both of those professors and that marked a new era for uh, finding out quote-unquote what works but of course with much criticism criticism to it which I will go over uh, in a later chapter okay. anyhow so that was the chapter 3 um, I hope you understood what I uh, spoke and as I said uh, please do read the textbook um, together with my audio lecture and the textbook uh, they consist of uh, a pack package of uh, lecture material so okay thank you very much